Hey, it works. Um, well, today we're, we're back in Habakkuk. Last time I preached in January, we did kind of an introduction to Habakkuk. And today we are in the actual pages of Habakkuk. Um, and I want to give a, a little bit of a heads up. Today was, has been a very long day for me. Um, I've been up since about 1 o'clock this morning and spent seven hours in the ER with my daughter. So I'm extremely tired, hence completely forgot how to sing. My hope is built on nothing less today. Um, but I, I say that not to explain my, my dilemma, but to explain even last night, as I sat in the ER, worried about my daughter, who looks like she has a baseball on the side of her face, um, worried, you know, that, you know, what is it, what's going on with her, I'm reminded of this passage today, that we have a sovereign God who is ruler over all things. Even the, the ER room at Baptist Children's Hospital, as we sat there and waited and waited and heard all these kids in this room crying and, and very pitiful um, my daughter very worried about what was going on, and um, I was reminded and encouraged by this passage, as strange as that sounds, that our God is in control. And as we heard from Habakkuk last time, I tried to explain that Habakkuk is a unveiling of things that are greater than what we see happening. We, we get a picture that is revealed that is on a much greater scale than... Um, what we think is right before us. And today I hope that we begin to see that in, in more detail as we look at what Habakkuk, um, the oracle that he received, um, to, to give an introduction to that and just be reminded of, of the last sermon. We, uh, we, we sought to, to look at three different kings and their progression. Uh, Manasseh was the, probably the most evil king over all of Judah. Um, and he led the people to do more evil than they had ever done. And he led them astray into paganism and idolatry. And then two kings later, Josiah rises up. I think it was two kings later. I might be saying that wrong. Josiah rises up as an eight-year-old boy as king. And he comes in, and throughout as he ages, throughout his time, he finds the book of the law, he returns the people to true worship of the Lord. They have spiritual reformation in the nation. He purges all of the land of idolatry and all of the, the false temples and the, the places of, of worship. He reinstated the Passover and he brought this great spiritual growth to the people. As one of the youngest kings over all of the land of Judah. And then he was killed in battle at the age of 39. And... His son took power, and Pharaoh Necho came in, and he didn't want him to be ruler. So he cap captured him, removed him from the land, and deposed him, and set a new king in place. And this king was Jehoiakim, who after this great spiritual reformation, Jehoiakim comes in, and he's the pawn of Pharaoh. And he returns the land to um, idolatry and paganism. And Nico wanted this king because this king would pay tribute to him. So he was truly a puppet ruler. And Habakkuk is in the midst of this time that Jehoiakim is king. 
And he's crying out as a prophet speaking for the people and receiving word from God back to the people. And as the book opens, we see that he uses some words that make us believe that he has been crying out for some time. This isn't his first prayer. He's been, he's been continually, continually beseeching the Lord for what was going on in the nation. And he does what the New Testament tells us uh, to do. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Even when you haven't received the message that, or an answer that you think is, is an answer from the Lord, keep praying. He follows uh, 1 Peter and he continues to entrust his soul to a faithful creator. Knowing that God was the only one that could uh, work through this situation. And he's fighting in himself the battle of Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Habakkuk is like an Old Testament illustration of these New Testament passages. And we learn from him just by the, not even necessarily by reading through the book what the message actually says, but by his behavior, his beseeching of the Lord, his coming to the Lord continually, pleading on behalf of the nation. That is how we should be. And I'm not, I'm not up here to preach some political message of this is how we should be praying for our nation. We should pray for our nation and our rulers. But we're not, I'm not up here to uh, talk about our, our current culture and all the ins and outs of that. This does apply to that. But I want you to, to understand that even in the daily lives of the things that are going on in your life, like me last night in the middle of the ER, praying to the Lord that He would direct the steps of, of everything that was happening, that he would give the doctors wisdom, that he would calm the nerves of my daughter who is anxious, that he would heal her, her broken body, that he would give me wisdom and hold my emotions as I'm a very emotional person. He would hold my emotions together so I could be strong for her. He cares about even those minor details that are big to us, but they're minor on the grand scale of history. And so Habakkuk, comes into this, we come into this book and we see that he, he is pleading before the Lord. And he's crying out, from the way that I understand this, he's crying out for revival. He, he is seeking the Lord to do what he has done in the past. Revive this nation like you did in Josiah's time. Up, up turn or turn over the, the paganism in this world, in this nation, and return us back to true worship. Let's read Habakkuk 1, 1 and 2. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? And he, he's, he's crying out this prayer that you and I have probably cried out before. How long, Lord? Shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How often have you cried that before? <clears throat> I find myself crying that prayer in the middle of the night when I am tempted to believe lies that are not true and I'm tempted to struggle with fears and anxieties in the dark and you cry out, Lord, how long? How long will this last? You have a heavy burden weighing you down, and over time it just gets heavier and heavier, and your crying out seems to fall upon deaf ears. Am I not praying right? Have I, have I done something wrong? Is this punishment? Does God care? Will He be true to His promise to never leave me or forsake me? I feel forsaken. 
Why does God remain silent? Let's read Habakkuk 2 through 4. 1, 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. Do you realize that he's actually crying out about his own people? This is, he is describing what's happening in Judah. He's not even to the Chaldeans yet. Like he's crying out, this is what our people are living like right now. We are so wrapped up in our own ways and in our worldly uh, desires that this is what it looks like. And he cries out for three things. He cries out against violence. He says, Lord, do you see the violence? At least if you do not save me because I cry out, at least save me for the sake of your righteousness or your character. Lord, will you not save? Violence and wrong, it abounds around every corner, in every home, in every relationship. Lord, return us back to you. And it's interesting that the word that Habakkuk uses for violence in verses 2 and 3 is the same word that was used to describe the earth prior to the flood. In Genesis 6, 11-13, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, or with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And God, back in in Genesis 6, tells that He will send a flood and He will sweep away the rebellious. And in the midst of the flood, He saved a remnant who, who were the only ones that it says were seeking Him. And in Habakkuk's day, when he, is, he was sending a flood of Chaldeans to sweep away the rebellious, yet there would be a remnant who would survive according to Habakkuk 2.4 who would live according to their faith. And so he's crying out about the violence, the, the, just the, the corruptness of the earth. But he's also crying out against iniquity. He says, I see iniquity here and I see wrong there. Lord, do you not see this? Why are you idle? The destruction and violence. We have a good, we've had a good king, Josiah, who, who brought revival and restoration to the people of God. But now there are idols and, and false worship and all-out all paganism once again. No one seems to care about the way of the Lord. Do you see this iniquity? He says, not only that, but they seem bent on attacking anyone who cares for the way of the Lord. Because strife and contention arise. He says, we are not unified. We're not reconciled together. Father, do you see this? He's crying out, turn this, the heart of this king like you turn the mighty waters. And as we, as we listen to this, we, we kind of think about, or I do, think about Psalm 1 and the warning that was there at the beginning of Psalm 1. Judah has begun to walk in the counsel of the wicked. They have stood in the way of sinners, and now they have sat in the seat of the scoffer. They're no longer 
listening to the ways of the world or, or, or playing with the ways of the world. Now they have joined the world and they are ridiculing anybody who stands against that. They have become scoffers. They no longer delight themselves in the law of the Lord and they find delight in leading others to do the same. But thirdly, Habakkuk cries out against injustice and perversion of the law. <clears throat> he calls out to the Lord um, seeking justice, speaking about how the law is paralyzed. MacArthur states that this word paralyzed is, is like um, hands that are rendered useless when they're so cold they, they can't function right? Have you ever been so cold that your hands feel like it's hard to bend them and move them and you try to grip things or, or use a tool in the cold weather and you can't hold on to it the right way? And he says that is, that is the way that the law has begun to function. It's broken. It's uh, bent out of shape. It's crazy. It's confused and distorted. It does not go forth like true justice. In this climate... Justice does not make any sense. And Habakkuk cries out to the Lord to hear, to see, to respond. And this is where we we receive some hope. Because Habakkuk's not crying out because of what he doesn't know about God. He's crying crying out to God because of what he does know about Him. He knows Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, faith, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And he, he's, he's like, since God is like this, how can it be that he would let things get where they are. If, if God is keeping grace and mercy, if He is also, on the other hand, punishing uh, iniquity and transgression and sin, like, God, where do we fit in this? When, are, when will you respond? These people are those who are, who are opposed, are supposed to be the people of God, but they have fallen far from the days of King Josiah. In our day, we've seen many reasons to cry out like Habakkuk does. We do live in a society that is very similar. Everywhere you look, you can see violence, iniquity, injustice, and perversion of the law. Especially if you're thinking of perversion of the law of God. And we have good reason to cry out as Habakkuk does to the one that we know who can do something about it. The Lord sees as Genesis 16.13 says, that He is the God who sees. He's not blind. And we should not judge His silence for ignorance or blindness. But let's think about this. How often do we sinfully deal with society and our problems? We do not lament like Habakkuk does. He's crying out based on the character of God. He's crying out like, God, you are a just and holy God, so you should do something about this. You're a God who says you are ever present with us, so do you see this? You should do something about it. But oftentimes we, we rather complain and whine to each other about politics or violence that we see on the news. And the last thing that we do is, is seek counsel from the Word of God or pray to Him. We seek saviors everywhere except in the Lord. 
Uh, last or two weeks ago, Pastor Nathan almost stole all my thunder as he preached from Psalm 77. But he, he did say something that I want to remind us of. In the midst of our suffering, we must remember the character of God. Habakkuk's doing that. He's crying out to the Lord for compassion and justice. Like, God, you know, have compassion on those who are your people and bring justice to those who are not following your ways. And we, too, need to be crying out to the Lord based on His character, on His, His goodness, and on who He is. And we see in Habakkuk's uh, book here that the Lord eventually responds. However, it's not exactly as Habakkuk wishes it to be. He's crying out for revival, but the Lord gives an answer of retribution. And I want us to to see this, that the Lord is sovereign. And even when we cry out for the right things, His response isn't always how we see fit. But it is always perfect, right, and holy. Because God is perfect, right, and holy. And so as we go into this next section, we need to remember that He is still sovereign. He is still good. He is still holy and right. And he says, he brings the the promise of retribution. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He tells Habakkuk to look out among the nations. He tells him, uh, wonder and be astounded, because even if I tell you what's going to happen, you won't believe it until you see it. Because it is completely opposite of what you think should happen. And he, he, he is crying, Habakkuk is crying for further deliverance, and God is promising further and greater captivity. But he prophesied this. The Lord did back in 2 Kings 21, uh, verse 12. During the days of Manasseh, the Lord said this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Sounds the same as wonder and be astounded. I am bringing something that won't make sense to you, but it fits into my perfect plan. And you can, you can understand how Habakkuk receives this message. Have you prayed for something good to happen and it seems like the very opposite of that is what happens? He's already dealing with questions of how long this current situation would last and remain. And, and God says, it's going to get worse. In fact, it's going to get much, much worse. And that's why God tells him, you won't believe it even if I tell you. You should look out among the nations and see it's coming. And so the question is, how, how was the situation to get worse? And before we, we get into this, I want us to understand that God then presents this picture of the Chaldeans. But it's not like Habakkuk didn't know how the Chaldeans were already. God was proving to, to Habakkuk that he knew exactly the type of people that were coming. He was proving to Habakkuk that he was not ignorant that he wasn't doing something that was just absolutely crazy. God was fully in the knowing of, of what this people coming against them would be like. 
And God makes it clear to Habakkuk that through the Chaldeans, or though the Chaldeans are arrogant and full of pride, God lets Habakkuk know that he is raising up that bitter and hasty nation. That he is fully in control of the situation in his sovereignty. Nothing here is happening by chance. Nothing's happening because evil is in control. Nothing is happening outside of the control of the sovereign God of the universe. And for us, that's very important for us to understand. In your current suffering or any suffering that's future that you will, you will face, it may seem like there's this perfect circumstance of a uh, perfect storm of circumstances that has fallen upon you. And it, it may look absolutely random, like why, why has all these things happened? It's just wave after wave. And you must believe that the sovereign God of the universe is always in control. And He's working His grand providential plan to the culmination of the end of time where He will receive all the glory and it will be for your good if you are a believer. So evil may seem like it's in control and it may even boast of the evil works that it does as if it's been in charge. But remember Job? Remember his situation that Job never knew about? That Satan comes to present himself before the Lord. There's one form of submission already. Satan just isn't out there roaming on his own. He has to come and present himself to the Lord. And it's God who says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan states, oh yeah, but Job only worships you because everything goes his way. And God gives Satan the ability to test Job. God was in every aspect fully in control of everything that Satan could do. There wasn't anything that Satan did on his own. It was only when God let out Satan's leash that the adversary was able to attack Satan, or attack Job. And then he let it out a little bit more and he was able to do a little bit more. If, if Satan had his way, Job would have been dead the first time. But God only let him attack his, his, his people, his things. And then he attacked his health and his, his, uh, like his livelihood, his ability to live. But he, didn't, he couldn't kill him. He could only do as much as God had ordained. And as soon as, as the Lord let out the leash, Satan went as fast and as hard as he could toward Job. The, the Chaldeans and Habakkuk are like Satan in the story of Job. They are a hasty nation. As soon as God allows them to go as far as they do, they go as fast and as hard as they can. They are hasty and prideful, and they think they are in control, but they are still under the sovereign leash of the Lord. So we, we find reason to praise God for His, His control, even in the midst of suffering and, and, and trials. But let's take a look at the Chaldeans. Look at verse 6. They are, a, they are hasty, and they go and they conquer all that they can conquer. They see no boundary to their dominion. Verse 6 says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Not only are they hasty, but they are also dreaded and fearsome. They even set their own definition of justice and dignity. They believe they make the rules. They believe they are the rule themselves. Verse 7 says, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Number three, they are fast, fierce, fanatical, and fueled by the next thing they can devour. Verse 8 says, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And Habakkuk's hearing this, and he's like, yeah, so why are you sending them? Like, Why are you doing this? But look at the word when it says they are more fierce than evening wolves. Don't, don't go over that too quickly. Evening wolves are the fiercest because they are hungry and on the prowl for their prey. And their hunger is insatiable. But look at verse four or nine. They are violent, insatiable, always face front, looking to the next victim to conquer. Verse nine says, "They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. They, when they are on their their march to conquer, they don't even look back to the lands they've conquered. They are only looking to the next thing, the next land that they can face and they can take over." They are that bold and that courageous in their own way that they, they don't even care about what's behind. They only look to the, the future. They're that greedy. They're also prideful and unafraid. They laugh at kings and rulers, and there's no fortress that's too fortified for them. Verse 10 says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. There's no fortress wall that's too high that they can't just dig up all the earth, make a bridge, and go over the wall. Like, there, there's nothing that, that's too hard for them to conquer. And also, number six, they are idolatrous. Verse 11 says, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship at the feet of their own strength. They trust wholly in their ability to conquer all and expand their dominion. And as you hear this description that the Lord gives, remember Habakkuk's current situation. Like this is a future thing that's coming. But remember what Habakkuk originally cried out for. He cried out about his own people and their idolatry, their violence, their defining their own justice. He cried out saying that the law was paralyzed and justice goes forth perverted. And God is sending a wretched pagan nation who is worse than Judah at the same time giving Judah a taste of their own behavior. It's like, you want to live on your own? You want to do your own thing? Then I will send you a nation that will overpower you because they have perfected doing their own thing. And you will not be able to stop them. You don't want to live under my my good rule and my way? Then I'm going to send a nation who refuses to do that. And they will have no bounds. They will, they will not hold back at all. And so it makes us think about Romans 1. Turn with me to Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18 See what Paul says here in this, this passage. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This sounds like a commentary on Judah at that time. It sounds like a commentary on the Chaldeans. And it sounds like a commentary on our culture. Because they rejected God, God has turned them over to their own devices. And he is sending a nation upon them who has perfected this evil behavior and is fully pagan without God. They should have trusted in the one who sets the definition for justice, who sets the law and is himself to be feared above all, who the word says is is a devouring fire, who alone deserves all glory for all is under his dominion. But they rejected him and he is turning them over to a nation who think they are God and who are vicious and insatiable. So, In our own lives, we must remember that this is important for us, that we do not forget God, that we do not try to set ourselves up as God. We we do not try to walk in our own ways, but walk in the ways of the Lord, according to His Word. James Smith said, Whereas Israel had once been God's instrument to dispossess the idolatrous Canaanites, now the idolatrous Chaldeans would be the agent to dispossess the rebellious Judah. But... Not only is God like turning over Judah to their desires, but he will one day turn over the Chaldeans to theirs. For they have um, in their empire self-destructive traits of greed, cruelty, arrogance, self-sufficiency, haughtiness, and blasphemy. And these traits, as we will see later in Habakkuk, will lead to their downfall. God will punish these traits. And we as a church went through Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's like the end of this part of the story, where they are returning back to their land. And he, he has, the Lord restores their worship of God, and he returns the people back from captivity. 
Further into the future, God is even doing yet a greater work, and He's going to bring it to completion, to a good plan, to one day destroy all evil and set His people free from the bondage of sin and death forever. And so this brings us to the third thing and the final thing, that God is the sovereign God of history. And there's throughout this, this passage, verses 1 through 11, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of hope here. It seems pretty awful. It seems like it's constantly like being beat down with, with fear and anxiety over what's coming. That the situation's already bad, but God, you're going to make it worse. Like, this, it's not going to get better. And we see that God is the sovereign God of history as Habakkuk works through these cycles of, of prayer and response, prayer and response. And God unveils what He is doing in history. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said the following about God and history. Number one, history is under God's control. Just stop and think about that. History is under God's control. There are, there are many things in our world that it just seems like history or, or time, it just kind of flows on its own rate. And it just it continues to cycle around and it just we're, we're stuck on this, this wheel of suffering. But it is under God's control. We heard from Habakkuk 1, 5, and 6, and it told us this, that it says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I, meaning God, is raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth, diseased dwellings, not their own. God is doing a work. He had been preparing the Chaldeans for this very moment to come and conquer the rebellious Judah. And he had planned for Judah to be captured and taken to Babylon so that they may, the ones that that are the remnant, the ones that choose to trust in the Lord, are used to display God's glory in the pagan nation. Just open up Daniel and start reading through that. And see how God used these teenagers to speak the truth of God to this pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, who is the very one who comes and conquers Judah. And from the very mouth of, of Nebuchadnezzar, he begins to proclaim that your God's the true God. And then when you think about the way that he used Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand forth, we will not bow to your statue. We only bow to the Lord our God. And then in the fiery furnace, God is there with them. And when they come out, they don't even smell like smoke. How many of you have been around a campfire? go camping and you, you sit around the campfire and you're like, man, this is great. And your allergies are going crazy. And then you come home and you take out the clothes and it's like, oh, it smells like the campfire still. And you sometimes can't get it out of your hair. It still smells like that for days. You got to wash it 20 times. And you were just sitting near the fire. These men were in the fire and nothing of them smelled like fire. They weren't burned. They weren't harmed. God protected them in the midst of the fire, which killed the men who threw them in. It was that hot. And God used those who would live by faith in the midst of this pagan nation to proclaim His glory. History is under God's control, and it works in a way that is mysterious to us. But it also follows a divine plan. 
Look at chapter 2 of Habakkuk, verse 14. When he is, God is giving woes, he is proclaiming woes to the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation that's going to come and conquer Judah. He then proclaims these woes, and in the midst of it, he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God has a divine plan that all of history will point to the earth as a whole being filled with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But it also, number three, it follows a divine timetable. Look at chapter uh, 2 of Habakkuk, verse 3. The Lord tells Habakkuk, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is telling Habakkuk, all of these things that I have told you, they're coming. And they're coming fast. It says it's hastening to the end. It may not be quite like how Habakkuk wants it. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It's coming. And he's telling him, it is, it is coming at the appointed time. When we're in, in our suffering and our trials, we, we often struggle with the slowness of God's hand or the, the timetable of how things play out. And it's like, I almost think of Habakkuk being like, okay, if this is coming, can it just hurry up and happen? And then we get to the captivity being uh, it over and us returning back to our land. Can it just hurry up? And he says, if it seems slow, wait for it, because it's on my timetable and it's coming. Not only is it under his control, it's, it's under the plan that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, but it's on a timetable that's only his. It does not work the way ours does. But number four, it's bound up with the divine, the divine kingdom. And here we have to go to Matthew 24. And if you will turn there, um, I want us to see this together. We're almost to the end. Matthew 24, Pastor Nathan once again spoke about this passage last week. Um, number four is history is bound up with the divine kingdom. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4 uh, through 14, says this, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now this is being presented well after Habakkuk's time. 
But Christ is presenting this picture that yet this is still yet to come. And this is even our time now that we hear of wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes and there are famines. And he says all of it comes to the conclusion of the, the separating of those who fall away and what don't follow the Lord and those who do continue to follow the Lord. And they will be used by God to proclaim the gospel to the whole world, it says, and then the end will come. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of this, this trial, God is proclaiming His gospel by those who remain faithful in the midst of this, this horrible thing that is coming. And he's telling Habakkuk way back in the Old Testament, in 2.4, he says the righteous will live by faith. It's the same message he's speaking of in, verse, in Matthew 24. Habakkuk cries for deliverance, but the Lord promises captivity. The Lord does not work in the way that we would write the plan of God out. We would write it very differently. And it, it, uh, it amazes us that the greatest thing that was ever accomplished was accomplished in a way that astounds and confounds man. That He would save a people who were rebellious to His ways by the sending of the Messiah in human flesh and then killing Him on a cross for the people who rejected Him. We too would have written a different story. That doesn't really make sense to us. But that is the perfect way and the only way that God saw fit. That it had to be the Son of God who was absolutely perfect to live on your behalf and my behalf so that He could then die in our place and take the wrath of God for what we did wrong so that then the, uh, the God part of Him could raise His manhood from the dead and conquer death and the grave and live eternally. That was the only way it could work. But even that confounds us and it's amazing. And we stand in all of it. God does not work in the way that we think He should work. And that is what He's telling Habakkuk. I am doing something in your day that should wonder and astound you. And you won't believe it even if you saw it. And it's like Habakkuk was looking for another King Josiah to come. He was looking for another King Josiah to raise up and return the people back to the Lord. And he was saying, no, it's going to get worse. But one day there is a king that's coming who I'm going to raise up. I'm going to send in my name. And he will do my will perfectly, much better than even Josiah. And he will die for you. A.W. Pink says this, In the everlasting covenant, Jesus Christ was appointed their head, He took their responsibilities upon Himself, and He wrought out a righteousness for them that was perfect, indefeasible, which means not able to be made void, and eternal. It was sovereign will that appointed Him, sovereign love that sent Him, sovereign authority that assigned Him to His work. Certain conditions were set before the mediator, and he was to be made in the likeness of sin's flesh. He was to magnify the law and make it honorable. He was to bear all the sins of all God's people in his body on the tree. He was to make full atonement for them. He was to endure the outpoured wrath of God. He was to die and be buried. On the fulfillment of those conditions, he was promised a reward. He was to be the firstborn among many brethren. He was to have a people who should share His glory. 
Blessed be His name forever. He fulfilled those conditions. And because He did so, the Father stands pledged on solemn oath to preserve through time and bless throughout eternity every one of those for whom His incarnate Son mediated. Because He took their place, they now share His. His righteousness is theirs. His standing before God is theirs. His life is theirs. There is not a single condition for them to meet. Not a single responsibility for them to discharge in order to attain their eternal bliss. By one offering, He hath perfected forever them that are set apart. And that is the God that we trust in. That is the God in the midst of our suffering who gives us hope that one day suffering will be put to an end. That one day suffering will be made right, but it's only because of Jesus. And for those that that go through that suffering and choose to live a righteous life, and choose to stand when the king tells you to bow down, and you say, no, I only bow to the Lord, and you proclaim who that great Lord is, those that proclaim the gospel and live it out by their faith, they are the ones that he will one day work all of this out for their good. And so today, I 